commiserate with uh, Macbeth, and I feel like Macbeth is commiserating with me. He's an extreme example, but I have felt shadows of all the things he has felt. I have mourned the fact that my life seems to have been written by an idiot, and that I ha seem to have no power. Until you married me. <laughs> I mean, everyone has felt that way, and... Yeah, it is a beautiful thing. I think, yeah, the, the, the imagination is horrifying and beautiful. Yeah, and he yearns for a cure for his thoughts, but the cure is cutting the head off the body. That's what that looks like. What's in between? Is there a middle ground? <laughs> How do we live with our minds? How do we live with our minds? Hi, everyone. In today's recording, Claire and I will chat for a long time, maybe too long, about William Shakespeare's play Macbeth. And since I hesitate to make this recording longer by even a single second, there's going to be no quote of the day, and we'll just dive right into the recording. When I was a kid, I'm starting with a story. First of all, this is Claire Akerbrand, author of What Was Left of the Stars. You know what? You can stop that right now. What about your book? <laughs> no, nobody cares. It doesn't matter. Of course it. What people was, care. What Was Left of the Stars, which is a book of poems, The Field is White, which is a novel. We're going through with it. <laughs> many dozens, if not hundreds by now, of beautiful paintings. She is to be Googled. <laughs> when I was a kid, I was terrified of aliens and alien abduction. Um... <laughs> Stemming, I think, from an innate oversensitivity, perhaps a too active imagination, which is where this is going. Yeah, but now you don't even care that aliens actually exist. I'm the one who's freaking out. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, well, we still have to Put our make pants breakfast. On. Yeah, I've been preparing for this. <laughs> yeah. UFOs are real. Anyway, uh, seeing the X-Files too early terrified me. I remember one night my family and I were taking this road trip and we were driving late at night late at night and we finally stopped probably like after midnight and got a motel somewhere you know that atmosphere being out in the woods this is in canada in the middle of nowhere looking up at the sky through a car window for hours and hours little kid terrified of aliens the mind starts to imagine yeah i remember this night we stopped at this motel and i was laying in bed and it wasn't a dream per se it was maybe a half dream but i my mind convinced me that I was floating out of my bed, and I was kind of paralyzed. I couldn't move. I was lying on my back, and I couldn't move. I couldn't move my arms, couldn't move my legs, couldn't talk, couldn't speak, and I was floating kind of very slowly off the bed. Mm. I'm telling this story because Macbeth, I think, among many other things, is a story about the dangers of and power of the imagination. Mm -hmm. What happens to a mind that can't stop... Circling around. Circling around certain fantasies. Mm-hmm. You have a story to tell about the Backstreet Boys. Really? It's related. Which one? <laughs> well, well, not that you met one or two of them. That's not important. <laughs> the one about the concert that you desperately wanted to go to. Oh, yeah. So sad. And there was a dagger in your mind. Macbeth uses this phrase, a dagger of the mind. And this dagger entered your mind in the form of a certain fear. <laughs> yes, I was a child. I don't know how old I was. Definitely not even a preteen, okay? You were young enough <laughs> that your love of the Backstreet Boys wasn't embarrassing. Right. And they weren't even famous in the U.S. yet. I was living in Germany. You, you got to them before they were cool. Exactly. <laughs> 
Yes, and they were coming to a Frankfurt. Um, it was going to be this huge concert. And we never got to go to concerts, ever. We didn't have money to do these kinds of things. But my mom let us go. She let us buy tickets. And we bought the tickets, like, way in advance. Like, more than six months in advance. This was a thing I pined for day by day by day. It was, like, the only time in my life I actually had a calendar. Like Macbeth where, wanting the crown. Yes, where I marked <laughs> off the days. And then the night before, <laughs> I had been so looking forward to it, and I was so terrified that something would come and, you know, something would go wrong, um, that I would get sick maybe and wouldn't be able to go. And then the night before, I got sick. <laughs> and my sister thought I was just exaggerating. She was the one I was going to go to the concert with. And she even got mad at me and said, you can't just skip it because you f have a little cold. I'm like, no, I'm really sick. <laughs> and in the morning, I was still sick. And I have no idea. It felt like the flu. I couldn't have done anything that day. I couldn't have dragged myself there and kind of enjoyed it. it I couldn't leave the bed. It's remarkable, isn't it, how the mind can imagine something and, and the border between reality and imagination isn't clear. Yeah. It's somehow malleable, this border. Mm-hmm. This is one of the things that, that Macbeth is about that I wanted to talk about. I really want to talk about two main things, maybe three. The third being fate, if we have time, but imagination and paradox are the first two. And how these two interrelate, I think they are quite related. Macbeth is Shakespeare's dark ode to the imagination. His heart of darkness, which we just read. Mm -hmm. His crime and punishment. What if I committed this murder? What if I did it? What if I did it? And it's almost like he's moving with this kind of momentum, this wave is carrying him forward. He can't quite stop. Mm. Similarly for Macbeth, you know, the crime happens in his mind first. And when it happens in his mind, the actual murder becomes, he says before it happens, it is done. Mm, true. But it's not. Interesting. So the actual doing of it in reality becomes a kind of parody or a copy of the real crime. So imagination for Macbeth is, is more real and intrudes upon reality. You know, I like that we never really talk about these things before we start with these podcasts, because I had no idea. Surprise you, gonna... you with my brilliance. <laughs> no, but I, I find it so interesting that you're calling it the imagination rather than the mind. Oh, well, I mean, one sits inside of the other. I know, but I, I wouldn't have called it the imagination. Well, you can think about it this way. I don't know if it's Harold Bloom or where I got this from, but maybe it's Harold Goddard. I can't remember, but... Um, one of these literary critics encourages us to ask, from time to time, this can be a useful question, what was in it for the author? What, what did the author get out of writing this thing for their own psychological biography? You know, so what was Shakespeare trying to understand about himself when he wrote Macbeth? Mm. I mean, you know, think of a playwright who deals with the imagination every day mm -hmm. and conjures things that aren't there, but in a way makes them real. He yeah. turns what is not real into something that is real. They're on a stage. It's, it's, it's happening kind of in a way that's real. Mm -hmm. And after a while, they become kind of psychically real in the mind of a country and the world even. You know what I mean? So artists deal with this kind of paradox every day, the reality slash unreality of the imagination. Mm. You deal with this when you paint. You know, You just dream something up and it's not real and then it's real. Yeah. Um, so, so this is why I say paradox and imagination, I think, are interrelated. 
But I mean, all, all humans do this to some degree. Think of, I know we haven't started talking about the play. We'll dive into it in a minute here, but think about the Garden of Eden, the tree, the fruit of the tree of knowledge is forbidden, which, which raises the question, is it better to be a god or this kind of like pre-human animal? Is it better to be a god who knows and can imagine? Or is it better to be a kind of pre-conscious ape or like some kind of deer or cow? I'm not sure the answer to that question is clear. No. Another story. Hmm? <laughs> Full of it today. Wow. Full of stories. Took our daughter to this trampoline center the other day. One of those, you know, annoying warehouses that... Plays Taylor Swift. Plays Taylor Swift and <laughs> covers everything in foam and <laughs> is too hot and germy. Um, sign waivers. Yeah, and a place in which you have to sign waivers to enter. That's right. I told her we were going to this place and described what it would be like. And I think in her brain, she imagined this kind of paradise where she'd be jumping on clouds and riding on unicorns and you know what, you know what i mean yeah. like oh this is going to be a fantasy land mm -hmm. but of course it wasn't so and this is what so much great wordsworth poetry is about and this is one of the many things that proust's in search of lost time is about you know there's moments where proust mm -hmm. is like as a kid he wants to see this opera singer named berma and he goes there and he's like i thought it would be better and wordsworth climbing the alps i thought it would be better so all of this is which all all of this is just to say one of the questions that I think that Shakespeare was asking for himself when he wrote this is does the imagination have a dark side? Here I am, this playwright, putting on all these spectacles, and yeah, they're great and they're beautiful and they're vehicles for exploration, but is it ever dangerous to to imagine? Yeah. I mean the Bhagavad Gita, which we read, would say it's a kind of poison, because we can always imagine something better, and therefore the present moment is slightly yeah, kind of interchangeable with desire, right? Desire is really just imagining. This is totally apropos of Macbeth. Hmm. He can imagine himself being king and therefore can't stop wanting it. Yeah, that's actually making me understand the Bhagavad Gita more. If you look at it, if you call it um, an unchecked imagination, then that's that makes more sense to me. So the imagination, the fruit of the tree of knowledge, is why I brought that up, is, is good and bad. Knowledge is a curse and a blessing. I, God tells them not to partake of it because some part of God wants to protect their... He doesn't want them to be hurt by this power. And yet, of course, when they do partake of the fruit, he says they will become like gods. So it, it is good, too. They become kind of divine. And what, is, what does God do with his imagination? He creates the world, just like a playwright. Hmm. Yeah. Creating so, things and knowing things comes with great sacrifices. This is a paradox. We've already introduced one of these paradoxes. Is the imagination good or bad? Well, the answer is yes. And the play is full of other paradoxes like savage butchers who can be called gentlemen and the witches say fair is foul and foul is fair. And Macbeth says nothing is but what is not. Some weird gender reversal. We'll get into some of these paradoxes, but that's kind of setting the thematic territory here. So what do you make of this first little act one, scene one? It's one of the most remarkable beginnings, I think, in Shakespeare. Isn't this opening of this play remarkable? These witches. First of all, it begins with witches. Oh, yeah. I even, you know, I really like the descriptions, too, of the acts. Thunder and lightning enter three witches. I don't know how to describe the power of this opening. When shall we three meet again? Even that first line takes my breath away. Hmm. Almost, um... Godlike, you know, it's as if the fates are 
meeting together mm. to um, decide what will happen to what people that they have some they have this power. Enter three witches. It's just Shakespeare's like conjuring them out of his brain, and then they suddenly exist and are totally real mm-hmm. and potent. And what you say is about the fates is interesting. Weird. They're called the weird sisters in this play. Mm-hmm. Weird is an Anglo-Saxon word that means fate. It's old English for fate. The word was weird. So really, yeah. So they're kind of synonymously. You could say that they're the fate sisters. So, wow, that's so cool. I'm well, so smart. Are they? <laughs> Are they real people or well they are because multiple witnesses see them, but they are clearly some kind of emblem of yes, fate or destiny and inescapable This whole thunder and lightning that beginning, doesn't it have something prehistoric about it almost? Totally. It's like the creation of the world almost. Totally. They're kind of a chaotic, yeah. Archetypal, mythical mm-hmm. out of the void came these witches, you know? Yeah. It's just so potent. One of the most remarkable things about this play to me is this, its speed. We'll go through Act mm. One and we'll see how quickly Macbeth falls into this. But we should, we should. <laughs> yeah. When shall we three meet again? I also like this because the word "again" in that first line implies that they've been up to important things since since the beginning of time. They have these cyclical meetings, and it's like our, the annual witches meeting that's always been happening yeah. since the year forty trillion BC. You mm. know. Here we are again. It's that time of the year. When shall we three meet again? Yeah. The cyclical natures of history, we'll, we'll talk about this when we get to the ending, is are these cycles escapable or not? I'm not sure. When shall we three meet again? When the hurly-burly is done, when the battle's lost and won. It's incantatory. Mm-hmm. And they begin with these paradoxes. When the battle's lost and won, could it be both? They're setting this very weird paradoxical stage. Fair is foul and foul is fair. What is this supposed to mean? I love that. You know what? That kind of summarizes the entire play for me. I feel like this play is an extreme version of Hopkins's poem, Pied Beauty. You know, the poem, um, he goes on about all the different imperfections of nature. Yeah, yeah. And how they are beautiful. Mm-hmm. And this is the extreme version of it. There's so much gore and yeah. so many disgusting, visceral details <laughs> The wit, you know, the witches, um, the ingredients they use, and all the blood—so much blood. <laughs> I find them strangely life-affirming. Here's that word again. Uh, well, we recently read the Tao Te Ching. Yeah. It, well, it relates to yin and yang. You know, there's mm. there's no beauty until there is ugliness. Yeah. And there's no justice until there is mercy. Mm. There's no truth until there is the opposite of truth. It's funny that you say Pied Beauty. I, I could I could see your Hopkins poem and raise you his other poem, Inverse Nade. It's not as well known, but he says... Yeah, I don't know. Well, I won't read all of it, but we're just reading snippets from it. This darksome burn turns and twindles over the broth of a pool so pitch black it rounds and rounds despair to drowning. What would the world be once bereft of wet and wildness? Let them be left, oh, let them be left, wildness and wet. Long live the weeds and the wilderness yet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so fair is foul and foul is fair. There, this is the Shakespeare's perhaps version of... I don't want to reduce it to suggest that it only means this, but it, it could be Shakespeare's version of this yin and yang, that this kind of inseparable unity between... It's also an Emersonian idea, that darkness and light come out of the same source, you know? Mm-hmm. We read Compensation. He says the rifle has its kickback. 
you know, you don't get the potency of the rifle without the kickback in the opposite direction. Scene, so I love Act, act 1, Scene 1. It's so small and so elementally haunting. Yeah. And it sets the table for so many of these um, ideas. I know, every fiber of my being, and I hate that phrase, <laughs> wants to make a movie as soon as I start reading this. Yeah. Well, you say movie. Polanski made that movie. Yeah. Um, and Kurosawa made his gorgeous version. Kurosawa's version is beautiful. The Polanski one's interesting for no other reason than he was married to Sharon Tate, who was murdered by Charles Manson. After which he made this film. So, Yikes. kind of right after. This is wow. the movie that he made. Quite fitting. Scene two, I love, like, Duncan is the king. They're on this battlefield. The human race is introduced like this. What bloody man is that? Oh, my God. <laughs> that's, the first, that's the first kind of introduction of the human species in this play. Bloody man. That is, like, the best thing ever. <laughs> I didn't even notice that. It's amazing. Because I was saying there's so much blood in here. What bloody man is that? It's like um, Adam. Wow. Enter the human and he's described as bloody because that's what humans are. They And when they're born, they're bloody. When they're born, they're bloody. And when they grow up, they make each other bloody. This is, this is like oh, wow. mankind in a line. And this is how mankind is, humankind is introduced in this play. And I love how throughout the play it is the blood. Specifically the blood. The the nasty, gory stuff that makes us human and gives us worth. I think you're right. I, I did a search, control F for blood, 41 or 42 times, which is a lot. Mm -hmm. It's like more than most other words that could be repeated in this play. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it is the blood, literally, that, that stirs Macbeth and Lady Macbeth to um, regret their actions. They can't stop thinking about blood. Exactly. And we'll see a few of those moments. So there's this battle. I think Norway is invading. Strange echoes of Hamlet. The sergeant is reporting. Doubtful it stood as two spent swimmers that do cling together and choke their art. I wanted to highlight this because Shakespeare, especially in this play that is so distilled and so controlled and so minutely structured, isn't really wasting. Shakespeare isn't really wasting words here. Mm. So the sergeant on one hand is describing that these... The two sides of this army kind of took each other down, but the two spent swimmers are clearly a foreshadowing of Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, who kind of are, find themselves drowning and grab onto each other and thereby both mm -hmm. sink down, you know? We hear about Macbeth before we see him, which is the case for almost all of Shakespeare's protagonists. So this is still the sergeant reporting to King Duncan what kind of man Macbeth is. For brave Macbeth, well, he deserves that name, disdaining fortune with his brandished steel, which smoked with bloody execution, like valor's minion, carved out his passage till he faced the slave. I love that phrase, carved out his passage, which is kind of in miniature what he does with his whole life, cuts his way through his destiny, mm. which ne'er shook hands nor bade farewell to him till he, Macbeth, unseemed him. From the nave to the chops. Jaws, in other Jaws, words. yeah. Um, and fixed his head upon our battlements, which is another foreshadowing because Macbeth, spoiler alert, gets decapitated. Mm. So Macbeth is a person who... And then Duncan, <laughs> King Duncan's response to that, Oh, valiant cousin, worthy gentleman. 
Right. <laughs> he he unseemed, he tore the seam of someone's body open mm. from their groin to their face and is therefore called a worthy gentleman. This is a paradox. Mm. And in a way, it's a kind of paradox. To us, maybe culturally it wasn't then, but it's had to be. It has to be, yeah. Like, how is this kind of violence praiseworthy? Yeah. In certain contexts, it is. But it's something that shouldn't make sense. I think this whole play is supposed to be a fairy tale that, strangely, that is strangely realistic and therefore makes the argument that life is as strange as fairy tales. But mm. we find out from him through a story first and believe in him and see him and imagine him. First of all, it creates uh, anticipation. It reminds you of the power of the imagination and how much people like to tell stories. And then there's a technical <laughs> information, too. He can kill when killing is arguably morally justified. Yeah. As it is in war. So shedding blood isn't that alien to Macbeth. Yeah. The sergeant says, As whence the sun begins his reflection shipwracking storms and direful thunder breaks... So from that spring, whence comfort seemed to come, discomfort swells. I also wanted to highlight this too, because the coming of spring, I think there's a symmetrical echo at the very end of this, when the forest sprouts up out of nowhere. You know, the trees suddenly appear, so spring kind of comes, or does it, is a question we could ask at the very end of this play. Is the, is the Burnham Wood marching to Dunsinane the coming of a real spring or a fake spring? A real renewal or a fake renewal? And here we have this idea of spring introduced right at the beginning. Duncan, at the very end of this scene, almost unknowingly quotes the Weird Sisters, Duncan, what he hath lost, noble Macbeth hath won. Mm. You know, so the battle is lost and won. People mm. lose and people win. Scene three, a heath, a thunder, enter three witches. First witch, where hast thou been, sister? Second witch, killing swine. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> so good. <laughs> One thing I love about this play is you can imagine Shakespeare just having an immensely good time writing this. Killing swine. <laughs> imagine him there with his feather quill just laughing his head off. <laughs> I think that's so funny. I think Shakespeare was having a kind of, I mean, not to compare this movie director to Shakespeare's long, long, even though his movies are good. A kind of Quentin Tarantino-esque good time in the in the extremeness of it all. Well, yes, but it could have also been terrifying to people to read about witches because people believed in witches. Yeah, for sure. That's very true. And Killing Swine also, it's like we see the human race kills each other, the supernatural yes. element. That's all they do, too. So it's like all of nature. This is what all of nature... The humans are killing each other. We just read about how um, Macbeth killed somebody, and then you go to the witches... And they're up to the same things. Well, it's interesting. that What else are they up to? Third witch, sister, where are thou? And then the first witch tells this weird story about how she asked this woman for chestnuts. And the woman said, go away. Aroint thee, witch. Get lost. You know, scram. So she's like, well, I'll curse you and your husband, who is a sailor. And I'll, I can't make his ship sink, which is interesting because fate has limits. But I can at least put his boat into this horrible storm. Mm. So they have these like petty desires... And there's another husband and wife pairing that kind of foreshadows Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. Again, it's it's not a wasted story. It has structural purpose. Right. And look at what Macbeth says. What are Macbeth's first words? So foul and fair a day I have not seen. Yeah, going back to that line I thought was the most important one in the whole book. Which is what the witches say. Fair, fair is foul and foul is fair. 
It's like unknowingly he's quoting them. And so is Duncan. So in a way they are kind of, well, not in a way, they do seem to be re- representative of fate. Like the, the characters start to quote them as if even human speech can't escape this design that the witches either create or have a special insight into. Even just on the level of literalness, is, is this not possible? Isn't it true that the day can be both fair and foul at the same time? A heath, thunder, enter three witches. He's looking up at the sky and saying, like, oh, this is well, yeah, beautiful and terrible. I guess I'm, maybe we're dwelling on this too long, but I just love this insistence that paradoxes are real, contradiction is real, yeah. it, two opposite things can coexist and be true at the same time. Yeah. We're only in Act 1, Scene 3, and we've been given enough foreshadowing and structural echoes that it's kind of faded how the play will end up. Can we know, if we read carefully, we know how the play will go. Mm-hmm. We see these husbands and wives being cursed by the witches. We see these two swimmers failing. Mm. We see a decapitation. Mm. We see um, the witches meeting again, which means that maybe at the end of the play, they'll have to get together again and plan the next kind of mm. sequel to this. You know what I mean? Yeah. They prophesy that Macbeth will be the king, that Banquo will be the ancestor of kings. I love this bit by Banquo. He's kind of greedy. Banquos, so they prophesy that Macbeth will be king. Yeah, all hail Macbeth that shall be king hereafter. They prophesy that Macbeth will be king. And then Banquo pipes up and says, To me you speak not. If you can look into the seeds of time and say which grain will grow and which will not, speak then to me, who neither beg nor fear your favors nor your hates. I don't know if Macbeth is especially evil. Banquo here to me is showing signs of a similar... Do you think... Like, you know those websites that say, like, click here to find out the day you will die? Yeah. They probably get a lot of clicks. Yeah. I think this is a inescapable need humans have to know what's coming. Or even to, um, to seek out fortune tellers, right? Even if they don't think that it's real, they just need to be told something. But what if it was real? If there was a person who you knew, knew your future... Could you resist going to that person? Is this a temptation that you could fight? Should I even call it a temptation? Is this an even an evil kind of impulse? I don't think it's evil, but uh, dangerous. Would you want to know? I don't think so. Because if you can't change it anyway. Yeah, but could you resist? I think so. You think you could? <laughs> yeah. Because they're right behind that door. Just open the door and they'll tell you. They'll tell you when you'll die. They'll tell you how. They'll tell you some things that will happen in the meantime. I don't know if I could withstand such a temptation. Yeah, that's where our personalities are different. (laughs) I wouldn't want to know. You don't care about what's happening in the future. That's right. (laughs) You always want to plan things. Do like a good plan. Decades in advance. At least decades, if not (laughs) centuries. (laughs) And I'm like, let's just do day by day. One day at a time. Day by day. That's way too long in advance <laughs> for you. Barely minute by minute. This just this is just one proof snack that, at a time. That you have arrived at the Krishna esque levels of living in the moment. <laughs> I'm I'm the one with the problem. I don't think so. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <clears throat> More paradoxes. First witch, lesser than Macbeth and greater, they say about Banquo. Second witch, not so happy yet much happier. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Maybe because Banquo doesn't want to know. Neither beg nor fear your favors nor your hate. Banquo is both happier and less happy than Macbeth. Luckier and less lucky than Macbeth. Mm-hmm. 
the world isn't simple, you know? Mm. And no one saw clearer than Shakespeare the predominance of paradox, the overabundance of contradiction. How beautiful is this? They vanish. The earth has bubbles as the water has, and these are of them. Whither are they vanished? And Macbeth says, into the air. And what seemed corporal melted as breath into the wind. Would they had stayed. You know, all flesh is nothing. It's just bubbles. Mm. It's gorgeous. Yeah, humans just hunger for any sort of clarification, right? <laughs> On any. their lives. Any. They're these hideous witches, but they knew more than they did. Yeah. And that made them desirable. And yeah, don't we admire the witches? Do we? Kind of. There's something really powerful and... Well, I like this question. Are they just purely satanic evil? Because one could argue that. But I'm open to being persuaded that there's something... Yeah, admirable isn't the word, but that we should respect about them. If anything, then there's their knowledge. And doesn't um, a writer become a sort of mm. witch? <laughs> well, yeah, this is, that's a good point. I mean, especially a playwright who wants to evoke the muse and have the muse tell him a good story so mm. that he can write it down. It's like, where do these stories come from? This is a, They come from a place that is immensely dark and powerful, mm. a little bit scary. Yeah. Yeah, they should be respected in some way. Yeah, and a writer wants to have that kind of wants to um, do that for their readers, right? They right. know what is going to happen and they give clues and yeah. guide the reader to, to the end. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, here, Banquo makes the point kind of that we're making. He says, but tis strange and oftentimes to win us to our harm, the instruments of darkness tell us truths, win us with honest trifles to betray in deepest consequence. We're going to talk more probably about Heart of Darkness, but I'm reminded there of Kurtz's not totally irrefutable insight that um, something horrible is at the foundation of being. Mm. You know, the, the devil mostly tells the truth. Sounds like a country song. <laughs> <laughs> but doesn't That's he? That's pretty good. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? <laughs> Macbeth, this supernatural soliciting cannot be ill, cannot be good. There's another paradox. This is so great. This is the very act of scene, the very end of scene three. So the witches tell him that he's about, that he will become king. Why, Claire, answer this question for me. Does he immediately begin to consider murder? This is his interpretation of the witch's prophecy. So he says, I am Thane of Cawdor. So you'll be Thane of Cawdor, Thane of Glamis, right? Suddenly he becomes Thane of Cawdor. Oh, the witches do know how to tell the truth. There's some proof there. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to become king. And then he says this. Why do I yield to that suggestion whose horrid image doth unfix my hair and make my seated heart knock at my ribs against the use of nature? Present fears are less than horrible imaginings. My thought, whose murder yet is but fantastical, shakes so my single state of man that function is smothered in surmise and nothing is but what is not. Oh, it's so good. Nothing is, but what is not. Like, my imagination has eclipsed reality. Now what is real for me isn't actually real. It's imaginary, but it's more real than real. Nothing is, 
mm-hmm. but what is not. So this is my question. Why doesn't he immediately ra- react like this? Oh, I'll be king. Oh, I'll just wait. Duncan will die of old age. I'll just wait. He has a great imagination and it's completely without any kind of moderation and just balloons instantly, which is a characteristic that a lot of terrible characters and people, real people have. We talked about Kurtz. This is Kurtz's great downfall. His desires, which desire is mm-hmm. interchangeable with imagination. Yeah, Kurtz desires to become a kind of god or... It's like, you know, we all st- we've all stood at a cliff's edge and imagined ourselves leaping over for no reason. Mm-hmm. L'appel de vide, the French have a term for that, the call of the void. The moment that little fantasy is implanted in our brain, for Macbeth, it's like he can't detach himself from it. Or, here's a theory, tell me what you think about this. He's long been contemplating the murder of King Duncan. Yeah, I mean, he must have definitely had some kind of dark strain. <laughs> he can't, you can't just instantly become a murderer. He does also say, if chance will have me king, why chance may crown me without my stirs all? He does True. say, maybe I should just sit back. He openly acknowledges that path forward as well. Right. Well, I mean, it almost happens immediately. When I was reading it, I thought, oh, wow, that happened quickly. <laughs> what happened quickly? <laughs> the decision to do it. <laughs> Well, I suspect, let's go to Lady Macbeth. Yeah. I suspect, I don't know, I can't prove this. Some smart people could give me lots of counter evidence, I'm sure. But there's some clues to me that they've been whispering at night to each other about this possibility long before the witches came. Yeah. Because why don't you read all this thing by Lady Macbeth? Act 1, scene 5. Lady Macbeth is reading. So these first words are a letter Macbeth sent to her. So she's reading out loud the words of Macbeth. They met me in the day of success, and I have learned by the perfectest report they have more in them than mortal knowledge. When I burned in desire to question them further, they made themselves air into which they vanished. Whiles I stood wrapped in the wonder of it came missives from the king who all hailed me, Thane of Cawdor, by which title before these weird sisters saluted me, and referred me to the coming on of time with Hail King that shalt be. This have I thought good to deliver thee, my dearest partner of greatness, that thou mightest not lose the dues of rejoicing by being ignorant of what greatness has promised thee. Lay it to thy heart and farewell. This is, that's the end of the letter, and then she kind of interprets the letter, or comments on it. Glam as thou art, and Cawdor, and shalt be what thou art promised, yet do I fear thy nature. It is too full of the milk of human kindness to catch the nearest way. Thou wouldst be great, art not without ambition, but without the illness should attend it. What thou wouldst highly, that wouldst thou holily. Wouldst not play false, and yet wouldst wrongly win. Thou'dst have great glamis that which cries, thus thou must do, if thou have it. And that which rather thou dost fear to do, than wishes should be undone. Hie thee hither, that I may pour my spirits in thy ear, and chastise with the valor of my tongue all that impedes thee from the golden round, which fate and metaphysical aid doth seem to have thee crowned withal. So I've gone through this letter that Macbeth sends to her, and there's no... I can't find any suggestion that he's thinking about murdering the king. I know. So that's... She independently comes to this idea mm-hmm. that they have to murder the king. 
which means that there's some kind of coincidence that they both have this reaction, which I suppose is possible, or they've already been whispering about this to each other and see the opportunity has arisen. Mm -hmm. I know, I remember reading this and thinking, I must have missed something. Why murder? Why are we murdering people? Yeah, it does seem like there is some kind of understanding between them that's not ever mentioned. Yeah, there's, definitely a, there's, a back, there's a backstory. Yeah. I love this. Hie thee hither that I may pour my spirits in thine ear. Mm-hmm. Poison. I know. She is. She's worse than the witches. She's a kind of fourth witch. People have described her that way. And this is another one of the, the play's repetitions. The witches have already poured some kind of poison into Macbeth's ear. So mm, yeah, for her true. to do it is just another, you know, when shall we three meet again, 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 again. Mm. Things that happen in this play happen double, double, double toil and trouble. You know, they mm. happen again and again. I love that. Too full of the milk of human kindness. Because it implies that kindness is childish and that Mm. only babies are kind as they're still nursing. And there's a weird thing about babies in this book, too. Such a weird thing about babies. So many weird... Not just babies, but fathers fathers and children or mothers and children, parents and children. As much as Lear. I mean, but babies specifically in a way Mm -hmm. that doesn't really happen in Lear. Lear's not really about babies, but this place consumed with the idea of babies. Yeah. I like what you say about that. I don't know if this contradicts it necessarily. And if it does, that's fine because we we now have acknowledged paradox is all here. Yeah. Is human nature good or bad according to this play? They contemplated murder or attempting murder, but this like... um, my husband is too full of the milk of human kindness, you know, so mm. Macbeth is kind. <laughs> According to Lady Macbeth, Macbeth is kind. Mm-hmm. Too kind. And even she says, Come, you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here and fill me from the crown to the toe, top full of direst cruelty. She, there's some mm-hmm. implication to me there that to kill, humans need inhuman help. Mm-hmm. The default state of a human is kindness and not murder. Mm-hmm. So if you want to commit a murder, you have to like invoke some weird demonic god. I don't know if that's an optimistic view of human nature or a pessimistic view. Yeah, I can see what you mean. But I f- feel like it's mostly a gender thing here. She is a woman and therefore not able to be as cruel as a man. That's supposedly. what she thinks. Yeah, yeah. That's what she thinks. And he's too full of the milk of human kindness, so he's too feminine, (laughs) because that makes him soft. And she even says, like, replace my milk with poison. She's praying to these murdering ministers. Come to my woman's breasts and take my milk for gall, you murdering ministers, wherever in your sightless substances you wait on nature's mischief. Come thick night and pall thee in the dunnest smoke of hell, that my keen knife see not the wound it makes nor heaven peep through the blanket of the dark to cry hold, hold. Very weird simile, like, make the dark, make the night so dark that I can do dark things under this blanket and heaven won't be able to see through it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just so strange. There is the, um, there's the opposites again. Fair is foul and foul is fair. Humans are foul and fair. They have kindness and yeah. they have cruelty. Yeah. Um, she ends this by saying, and I feel now the future in the instant, which is, I think, exactly the same as nothing is but what is not. So they're kind of quoting each other here. Macbeth says, nothing is but what is not. And she sees, I see the future in the instant. Mm. I can see I can see us, king and queen, now. 
scene seven. Macbeth, this is a, a very interesting soliloquy because we can see Macbeth change based on what he says. It's very strange language. If it were done when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. Just metrically, it's so ametrical. <laughs> it's not even remotely iambic pentameter. All those monosyllables. This repetition of it, I love because he can't, he's distancing himself from the murder. He can't call it by what it is. You know what I mean? He can't look it in the face. It means the murder. But if it's going to happen anyway, might as well make it happen sooner. If it was finished with the murder, Mm -hmm. then I should just do it immediately and get it over with. If the murder was free of consequences, you know, if it was over when it was over, then I should do it quickly. But it's not over. You can't just kill someone and walk away. It's not over. And then he says, if the assassination, which is another even then kind of you, because this would have been a newish word in English. So even still, he's dancing around the word murder. If the assassination could trample up the consequence and catch with his surcease, another euphemism, because surcease means death, mm. but that the blow might be the be-all and the end-all, but here, upon this bank and shoal of time, we'd jump the life to come. You know, I, I think it's so brilliant of Shakespeare. This is what makes him so amazing. He is capable of the most beautiful language, but then with something like this the most unspectacular words, he can yeah. totally break your heart if it were done when tis done. But that's exactly the opposite of what's going to happen. Yeah. It will only begin yeah. once the blood is shed. And I love the clotted. This is such a clotted soliloquy. It's not easy so to follow. Awkward. It's pretty awkward. Macbeth's mind is jumbled, confused, under so much pressure. And the language becomes slightly jumbled and confused and under so much pressure. You, you turn into the idiot telling the story, right? Yeah, As you're reading it. It's really hard to read out loud. But in these cases, we still have judgment here. That we but teach bloody instruction, which being taught, return to plague the inventor. If I start killing people, then I'm going to be killed because people will follow my example. This even-handed justice commends the ingredients of our poisoned chase or chalice to our own lips. He's here in double trust, another double there. Mm -hmm. So he's here at our house in double trust. He's put like double amounts of loyalty into us. So it's kind of a double of a sin to kill him. First, as I am his kinsman and his subject, strong both against the deed, then as his host, who should against his murderer shut the door, not bear the knife myself. Besides, this Duncan hath borne his faculties so meek, hath been so clear in his great office, that his virtues will plead like angels, trumpet-tongued, against the deep damnation of his taking off, and pity, like a naked newborn babe. There's another babe. Mm-hmm. Christ, the infant Christ, who is an infant, but also this kind of apocalyptic judge, striding the blast, or heaven's cherubim, horsed upon the sightless couriers of the air, shall blow the horrid deed in every eye, that tears shall drown the wind. If I kill him, baby Jesus will bring apocalypse upon me. (laughs) It's an amazing vision of baby Jesus riding a horse, blowing a trumpet. It's horrible. It's wonderful. I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent. I can't do it. But only vaulting ambition, which o'erleaps itself and falls on the other. Uh, what, What I love about this is how the imagination has changed his mind. It's like, okay, if I'm going to kill him, I better just kill him. But wait, it's not going to be over when I kill him. It's just going to begin. 
baby Jesus is going to come down. First of all, I might get killed. Second of all, I'm kind of double loyal to him, the host and his friend, and he's a good king. It was like twice as evil as normal. Mm-hmm. And if I kill him, baby, Jesus will come down and smite me and blow the trumpet and bring damnation upon me. Okay, I'm not going to do it. So this apocalyptic fantasy that he has, again, it's the power of the imagination. Right. We see the foul and the fair side of imagination. Oh, yeah, that's right. And a baby Jesus, <laughs> too. <laughs> baby Jesus. I love this. This is my favorite. It's just, he's just a little baby, you know. Um Macbeth's imagination is so powerful mm. that it can change the course of history. Yeah. So Lady Macbeth comes in and Macbeth says, We will proceed no further in this business. He hath honored me of late. He's not so bad. He's nice to me. Lady Macbeth. Was the hope drunk wherein you dressed yourself? Hath it slept since and wakes it now to look so green and pale at what it did so freely? From this time such I account thy love. Art thou a fear to be the same in thine own act and valor as thou art in desire? Wouldst thou have that which thou esteemest the ornament of life, and live a coward in thine own esteem, letting I dare not wait upon I would, like the poor cat in the adage? It's a aphorism about a cat who didn't dare jump over a puddle because he was too, too afraid. Like the saying says, you yeah. Macbeth, prithee peace, I dare do all that may become a man. Who dares do more is none. I think that's true. We see him unseeming men from the nave to the chops. <laughs> my, my new favorite phrase. Ew. What beast was it then that made you break this enterprise to me? When you durst do it, then you were a man. And to be more than what you were, you would be so much more the man. And yet you would make both. They have made themselves and that their fitness now does unmake you. I have given suck, and know how tender tis to love the babe that milks me. I would, while it was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from its boneless gums and dashed the brains out, had I so sworn as you have done to this. Okay, lady. (laughs) (laughs) Is this true? I don't know if it's true. She... She has to pray to a dark power to try to help her, give her cruelty, to not make her a woman. We're both kind of speechless. It's astounding. It's an astounding thing to say. It's as if the characters know that they are in a type of fairy tale, a terrible fairy tale. And they even use certain sayings, you know, like later with um, before... The trees of Burnham. What is it? Burnham called? Wood, yeah. Burnham Wood come to the castle. That sounds like a saying. Right. A nursery rhyme or something. Exactly. And even as she says uh, what she was going to do to her baby, it, it almost sounds like something of some kind of. Um, <laughs> yeah, some kind of Greek myth. You know, this is something Zeus he, would do to one of his kids or something. Yeah, like a rhetorical device. <laughs> you know what I mean? To prod her husband. Right. She wants it so bad. She's willing to say anything. I don't know if she'd be willing to do this. We see her later. So we see glimpses into a kinder, more sympathetic, more empathetic, slightly, barely, but still. And I and I brought up, you know, the sayings and the um, the fairy taleness because I think the weird thing about the play is that it's realistic. Besides the witches, it's realistic. 
Even the witches aren't that... That's true. I mean, there's fortune tellers. <laughs> there are fortune tellers. And, and people believe them. And sometimes they're right. Right. Sometimes fortune tellers are right. That's true. Yeah. So that's that's what's like really eerie. clocks or something. That's what's really eerie about this play. It's an amazing fairy tale that could also be real. I, I feel secure enough in my in your love for me and in my manliness. Uh-oh. So, so as a person who writes poetry for a living, the, scraps of, the few little scraps of manliness that I do possess, I feel secure enough about. However, I do feel like a little bit like if you were to tell me, oh, if you don't do this, you're not a true man, that would get to me. Really? I think so. I mean, I'm just trying to kind of put, my shell, put myself in Macbeth's shoes and... And be open and honest about how important uh, his wife's opinion is to a man. One of my most important relationships that I have is, you know, with my children. And if you would say, you are a horrible mother if you don't do this thing, hmm. that would get to me too. So after she says this horrible thing, Macbeth responds, I don't know, should we call this foreplay? Bring forth men children only? That is gross. Slightly erotic. Like, ooh, that's slightly exciting what you just said about killing our killing children. You're such a... There is some kind of erotic charge to this relationship. Well, yeah, that's for sure. Just bring forth men, children only. He's excited. Bring forth men, children only. Yeah, but why men, children? Well, because you're such a murderous... You're, you are not the vessel that should bring forth soft, frail little girls. In Macbeth's and Lady Macbeth's opinion... Women are not capable of cruelty. I'm speaking, of course, in their, yes, in their worldview. Yeah. She is such a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? She's such a taboo breaker that I think he's attracted to her a bit more after she says this. Yeah. F bring forth men, children only, for thy undaunted metal should compose nothing but males. You know, it's like, that's, I think he means that as a compliment. And it does, And he's yeah. talking about conceiving children. This is a... A slightly gross little moment. You're right. Um, I am settled. So he's convinced. Okay, fine, I'll do it. Prove to you I'm a man. I'm settled. We'll do it. Let's be bad. <laughs> let's be bad. Yeah, let's be naughty. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. If, Mac if Lady Macbeth knows what it is to nurse a baby, where is this baby? Where are their kids? Interesting. They're a grieving couple. That's why they went psycho. Well... I don't think we can reduce their psycho going to one factor, yes. but... Or maybe she's not a... Maybe they have not lost a child, and maybe that's exactly why she thinks she could kill her baby yeah. while it's smiling at her. I mean, her. she could have nursed someone else's kid. She doesn't strike me to be in the social class of a wet nurse, though. But then again, she does strike me to be the kind of person that if she did have a kid, would have used a wet nurse. Right, of and that, she... Of that social class. Unless we get really speculative, and this is some kind of second marriage, and she's older and has this previous life. Anyway, very vague and foggy backstory here. I think it's um, one of the appeals of this. They seem, therefore, more human. And he's a general, Macbeth, so they can't be that young. Mm. One would wonder, don't they have kids, right? And I think this, this issue of where their kids are, what happened to their kids, is relevant not only to Macbeth's emotional life, but... His whole psychological outlook, you know, we read in that speech about him, if it be now, if it be done, when we're done. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Uh, he says, um, well, let me read that a little bit. Um, if it were done, when tis done. 
that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all here, but here, upon this bank and shoal of time. Throughout this play, there's this insistence on Macbeth's part that he wants now to be the be-all and the end-all. Yeah. He's terrified of the thought of eternity. Mm-hmm. We'll get to the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech. He doesn't like the thought of eternity without him. This is kind of like fascistic insistence on this earth being, and this moment being the only thing that is. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's interesting because he was told the future and he doesn't trust it. I mean, yeah, he, the witch has told him and of course he can't know for sure if they were right. But he seems impatient. He wants the future to be now, which is exactly what Lady Macbeth says. I, th- I see the future in the instance. So they both have this very anti-eternal impulse, this anti-afterlife, this anti-tomorrow impulse. Kids do secure for us a kind of immortality. You know, so this is one reason why perhaps Macbeth is in rebellion against the idea of immortality. Right. Nobody asserts for certain that they have had children. It's an open question. But it... Shakespeare is kind of dangling bait in front of us. Macbeth has this kind of tyrannical hatred of germination. and Perhaps this is why babies get killed in this play. And maybe it could also be a general disdain or hatred of roles of men and women. She wants to be unsexed. Maybe she doesn't like the role that her society has given her. Yeah, on her part. I think he likes his role, though. He wants to be a man, a manly yeah, man. Right, and he wants her to only have men, children. So they're going to kill Duncan, they're approaching Duncan's chamber, and Macbeth has this hallucination. Is this a dagger which I see before me? The handle toward my hand. Come, let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Art thou not fatal vision, sensible to feeling as to sight? Or art thou but a dagger of the mind, a false creation proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain? I love the dagger of the mind. It's so beautiful. Dreams or daggers of the mind, aren't they? Yeah, dreams in the sense of aspirations. Yeah. Are aspirations... I mean, I, so good. I, I have this, yeah, love-hate relationship with ambition. Yeah. I, I don't think we can live without it. I don't think we should aspire to live without ambition, but it does become a dagger of the mind. Yeah. It does become a fatal vision. And, yeah, in all the books we've read f- from this podcast and just ever, I feel like that's always like the main issue that comes up, right? People fall because... Of too many desires. And they're fatal. Yeah. They have this vision of their lives and it's attainable and it's unattainable kind of. I mean, Don Quixote, this is why Don Quixote is so great to me because he is, he has this fatal vision. He has this, it's not a fatal vision, false vision of the world, but it's completely revivifying. And so there is a way in which a kind of false vision can carry you through. Yeah, it can be salvation. Fatal vision. I, I also think there's a Shout out here to King Lear, because in that play, Kent and everyone else was telling him, see better, see better, see better, Lear. Anyway, so in this play, there's a kind of vision. The imagination is this kind of interior vision that is dangerous. This takes us back to how we started. Our, mm. How do we have ambitions that aren't fatal? I know. Dream big, but not too big, but not too small. But dream don't. medium. <laughs> dream modest dreams. I mean, how lame is that? <laughs> That's so funny. What did our what did this thing used to say in our house? We moved into this house and these, these like these these decals that you can put or decals, I'm not ever sure how to pronounce that word, that you can put on the wall, you know, you can yeah. was already here when we moved in. What did it used to say? Something you like only we, su- we are too great for small dreams. And our brother in law <laughs> <laughs> uh, wonderfully 
we hated it. We wanted it gone. But he he only got rid of part of it. He got rid of enough letters <laughs> so that it said instead, eat small dreams. <laughs> it's become like a joke of our marriage. Which I loved. And it stayed up for a while. I feel like we should have kept it up forever. We should have. I regret taking it down. <laughs> eat small dreams. This is the answer, I suppose. Hashtag eat small dreams. <laughs> Thank you, Jerry. <laughs> um, if only Macbeth had had slightly smaller dreams. <laughs> I know, but... I would never tell my kids, have small dreams. I know. Go out there and dream small. I know. Isaac is obsessed with Mozart now and and Einstein. And it's like, no, those kinds of accomplishments aren't for you. To say that would be child abuse. It would be. So all of this is just to say I have no idea how to live or what to do. I guess you can sort of tell. I think I used to be really into the idea of balance in your life, but I I think it's overrated. I don't actually think that's really possible. Sometimes things are imbalanced and it's okay. Sometimes you focus more on other things, but I think you have to pay attention to um, and notice when it's starting to negatively impact the things that are most important to you. Then you probably need to scale back. Which Macbeth doesn't. Exactly. He lets this dagger of the mind stab him and then stab everyone else. And it starts, I love this. I see thee still and on thy blade and dudgeon gouts of blood. You can have this thing, this kingship, this desire, this ambition, this dream, this vision that you have, but at what price? Whose blood will have to pay for this dream that you want to fulfill in your life? Hmm. Macbeth makes this calculation, gouts of blood, you know, it's worth Duncan's blood to make my dreams come true. He's creeping towards Duncan's chamber, thou sure and firm set earth, hear not my steps, which way they walk, for fear the very stones prate of my whereabout. Remember, in Compensation, which we just read, Emerson says, commit a crime and the whole world is glass. Oh, it's so good. Commit a crime and the whole world is like a fresh field of snow in which... Every print shows. Every footstep is recorded. Emerson must have been reading this, you know. Yeah. Hear not my footsteps. The very stones pray it of my whereabouts. So he knows he's about to commit a crime and the whole world is witnessing this. He can't escape. Mm. But he just does it anyway. Mm. I go and it is done. (laughs) It's a remarkable thing to say. Well, don't you know... It's not. Yeah, but don't you know... Haven't you noticed in life sometimes, you know, something is about to happen and it's as if it's already happened. You feel that there's a point of no return. But this is an illusion, surely. This is a fatal vision. This is a lie we tell ourselves. You can pull out. This is Of course, yeah. It is a lie that our brain tells us. Um, but Every romantic comedy is built on this premise. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> I don't want to get married, but I, I can't call the wedding off. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is like the the, the social forces and pressure. It is done. It is done. It is done. But scene two, Lady Macbeth is kind of waiting outside the door. Macbeth is in there doing the deed. Lady Macbeth says this wonderful thing. Alack, I am afraid they have awaked and tis not done. The attempt and not the deed confounds us. Hark, I laid their daggers ready. Could not miss them. Had he not resembled my father as he slept, I had done it. She's not the cruel woman she wants to be. She's human. She's not a witch. And she has extremely important familial ties. Yeah. She might say that she would um, kill her newborn, but even just uh, reminding, even something reminding her of a family member makes her less cruel. This is a remarkable instance of Shakespeare's minimal one brushstroke and suddenly a three-dimensional human. We don't know anything about her father. Hmm what he was like, what their relationship was like, but we know enough that she was close enough to him that that's the anchor of her humanity. Mm -hmm. 
So gorgeous. It is. Enter Macbeth, and she says, my husband. Ew. <laughs> yeah, it's the only time in the play that he she refers to him with that word, husband. Really? So this is like their wedding. You know, you go in there and kill the Duncan, and this will be the consummation of our marriage. My husband. And their intertwining even, you know, gets embodied in these little half lines. Lady Macbeth, did thou not speak? Macbeth, when? Lady Macbeth, now. Macbeth, as I descended. So multiple people composing one iambic pentameter line. Yeah, so they become kind of one being, one entity. Yeah, it's a weird bonding moment. Yeah, Macbeth looking on his hands, which reminds us that there was previous moments in the play where he wanted his eyes to see not what his hands were doing, and now he can't stop, Mm. you know. The brain, the mind's not separate from the body. Back to Lady Macbeth's desire for heaven to kind of cloak the doings of the earth so that they can't be seen. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting if you if you think of the eyes being the mind, you know, as you often say, I see, yeah, I understand, mm. and then it's kind of this mind versus body thing. Can't have one without the other. Right. They wish they could. Every all of us wish the dagger of the mind is <laughs> is always there. I love this. Glamis hath murdered sleep. So Macbeth thinks mm. that he heard a voice. You know, I thought I hear this voice. Sleep no more. Glamis hath murdered sleep. I love that. This is the first instance in a motif of Macbeth murdering nature or the natural world or something natural about human life. You know, Mm. he's not just killing people. He's killing something elemental or primal. Sleep as a as a concept, as a phenomenon for everyone. Sounds amazing. It's amazing. Um, Macbeth, I'm afraid to think what I have done, but not afraid to dream of it beforehand. (laughs) You know what I mean? This is again, it's like he... Yeah, remembering is different than... Yeah, he's addicted to imagining. imagining. It's kind of like this potent psychedelic drug for him, the imagination. But memory is... Memory is different because then it involves the mo- the body too. Well, or well, that's a good comment. And also maybe because you're not really in control of your memories. Yeah. Imagination's a blank slate, but memory... He, he can't tyrannize his memory. And Mac- Yeah, sorry. But there seems to be a thing about witnesses too. You know, Lady Macbeth wants uh, to be able to do this thing in darkness so that heaven doesn't see. I always thought it was interesting in the New Testament when um, the apostles touch Jesus and they they seem to need to touch his physical body to truly understand that he has risen again and has been resurrected. And it seems to be the same with experience in general. When you imagine things, the body's not involved, the physical world. But then... um, once that thing happens, you know, your body is involved and there's a real witness and it changes everything. Lady Macbeth says, who would have thought the old man had such so much blood in him? Yeah, that's... <laughs> so, yeah, thinking of a dead body is so much different than causing one, touching one, seeing one. Mm-hmm. You're right, because, because your body is involved. Yeah. Macbeth says, I, I dare not look on it again. Lady Macbeth, again, criticizing his manhood. This is Shakespeare, so all of the sexual puns are intended. Infirm of purpose. They start hearing this knocking. Whence is that knocking? Edgar Allan Poe must have read this, The Telltale Heart. There's a kind of, like, psychological pounding in his brain. Mm-hmm. These might be some of my favorite lines of the play. Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? No. This my hand will rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine, making the green one red. 
Well, I love the word incarnadine. <laughs> it's so good. Making the green one red is also quite potent. Lady Macbeth says, a little water clears us of this deed. You think of, well, at least I do, of baptism. But not only that, but just our naive hopes for solutions. It's kind of, it seems like another Im imagination thing where you imagine that mm -hmm. something huge. All great Neptune's ocean washed this blood clean from my hand. No. And you can't imagine how it possibly could. And then, back in the physical world, Lady Macbeth says, a little water clears us of this deed. Yeah. They seem to think that in the real world, things are more possible, almost. Well, they are. She's right and he's wrong. Yes, a little water is washing that blood off. Mm -hmm. They don't need a whole ocean for it. But the problem is they don't just live in the physical world. They live also in the spiritual world. I like this. It, more confirmation that Macbeth's imagination is um, crossing the border into reality. Yes. He's imagining that if he dipped his hand into the ocean, the ocean would turn blood red, which yeah. is insane. Yeah. <laughs> that wouldn't happen. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a fantasy of guilt. Yeah. He's letting, his, he's letting his imagination run away with him again. Yeah. And yet, there is something so powerful and strong and vivid about that vision that makes it true. You know, again, imagination kind of eclipses reality. Mm -hmm. We read her statement, a little water washes us of this deed to be the false one. Mm -hmm. We read that one as the false one. Yeah. Even though it's technically the true one. That's true, yeah. And we read his to be the true one, even though it's technically the false one. Oh, yeah. There's a very thin line of... There's no line, really. The imagination is intruded into reality and, and become more real. Nothing is but what is not. Yeah, that's what I was saying, too, about the entire quality of the play being like a fairy tale yeah. that then becomes real. It is true, yeah. Yeah, I like that. They hear this knocking, knocking, knocking. The only comic scene in the play, this porter... Here's a knocking indeed. If a man were porter of Hellgate, he should have he should have old turning the key, right? The line to get into hell would be so long that the gatekeeper would become old because everyone <laughs> is guilty of sin. Knock, knock, knock. Who's there? He's very old. It takes him a long time to get to the door. In a in a production of this, it's, it can be very funny because he's kind of this old curmudgeonly guy who's making all these jokes. Who's there? Faith. Here's an English tailor come hither. You know, kind of kind of calling out. People in the audience, oh, you're going to end up in hell, audience member, you know? Mm. Be very funny. And then, like, this place is too cold for hell, so making a good Scottish joke for the, <laughs> for the English audience to laugh at. Um, <laughs> like a good comedian. Yeah, even colder than hell. Where, where's colder than hell? <laughs> Scotland, you know? Another comedic version of this paradox, what three things does drink especially provoke? Nose painting, sleep, and urine. Lechery it provokes and unprovokes. So it makes you more lustful, but it takes away the performance of lust. Yeah. How hilarious is this on the next page here? The night has been unruly. Where we lay, our chimneys were blown down, and as they say, lamentings heard in the air, strange screams of death and prophesying with accents terrible of dire combustion and confused events new hatched to the woeful time. The obscure bird clamored the livelong night. Some say the earth was feverous and did shake. Macbeth. Twas a rough night. <laughs> <laughs> Twas a rough night. <laughs> Again, it's hard to tell if Shakespeare's laughing as he writes this. You kind of have to imagine that he hears the humor in that. I mean, how could you not? Because Lennox wasn't even there for the, for the murder. I know, Macbeth's the one that stabbed people. 
<laughs> he keeps going on and on with colorful language. Hilarious. And then Macduff discovers the bodies and says, oh, horror, horror, horror. In which we hear echoes of both Lear entering with the body of Cordelia and future echoes of future echoes of Joseph Conrad. Yeah. Kurtz. That's, those are his last words in Heart of Darkness. Okay. The horror, the horror. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Macbeth and Lennox together. What's the matter? Macduff. Confusion now hath made his masterpiece. Oh. So good. Yeah, I... I'm stealing that. That's so good. Confusion is an artist, and this is his masterpiece. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think this is slightly autobiographical display. We're getting an aesthetic metaphor here. Mm. Masterpiece. Macbeth has to explain why the two... So he says that the two guardsmen killed the king, and that Macbeth <laughs> had to kill them in kind of this fit of self-defense slash vengeance. Like, why? And then they ask him, like, why did you do that? Why did you kill them? And then Macbeth, Macbeth answers, who can be wise, amazed, temperate, and furious, loyal, and neutral in a moment? No man. In a moment becomes a life in general, because where can we live but moments? And Macbeth is so obsessed with, you know, now, now, now. Where can we now. live but moments? Yeah, we'll get to the tomorrow. We, we, really, we really kick this tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow down the road, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. <laughs> but yeah, um, he is obsessed with now. Mm-hmm. The be-all and the end-all. Here, the be-all and the end-all. Yeah. No man. I quite like this statement because I think he's wrong. I think a human can be loyal and neutral in a moment, temperate and furious. This isn't impossible. It's not easy, necessarily, or automatic, but you can learn to control your anger and exercise violence judiciously. I mean, it is it is possible. Mm-hmm. It's not even that uncommon. Exactly. So for him to be like, oh, you, a human being is only the product of one emotion at a time, and we are blown by the winds of our passions, and you can't, two of these contradictory things can't coexist in the same body, in the same mind. It's just false. Yep. And it's, maybe it's true for Macbeth, but anyway. That's, that's good. My violent love. That's exactly. The expedition of my violent love outrun the pauser reason. <laughs> Ugh. Uh, he speaks truer words than he knows there, doesn't mm-hmm. he? You know. I love that reason as a pauser. That's kind of like he's telling the people like, oh, I had to kill them because my reason was outrun by my violent love. Mm-hmm. But as he's saying it, he's realizing something true about himself. This is what happened. Yep. He loved his vision, this fatal vision, so much that it outran reason. Right, because he chose to not pause. Yeah. He says in the beginning, I could wait. Until I become king, he did not allow for his reason to do its work. And then Lady Macbeth faints. Look to the lady. Is this a fake faint or a real faint? We don't know. We can't know. So it's a stupid question because the answer is obviously both. But Ladies are always fainting in these old books. <laughs> well, but does Lady Macbeth seem like the fainting type? This is an interesting... Not really. No. You know, my husband, she embraces him. Yeah. And it is... The one taking charge of the bloody scene with the daggers. She's not going to now start fainting. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe this is the first tinge of her conscience catching up with her. You know, she. Now that she has seen the dirty mess of reality, right. of her dreams come true. It's going to start to snowball. And the horses eat each other, so killing the king is an, 
apocalyptic crime because it turns nature against itself. The horses eat each other. Yeah, going against the order of things. Yeah, remarkable detail. Banquo earlier um, says that there is husbandry in the stars, implying that at least one worldview is that nature has an overseer, a a caretaker. Mm -hmm. Do you think he's right? In the context of this play, my suspicion is that his view, everything else in the play is evidence that his view is incorrect. Is there husbandry in the stars? More like witches in the caves. Yeah, God is not up there making providence is not making sure that the scales are balanced mm. humans are running amok and doing things that are so disastrous that the horses start eating each other where is god in this universe right which is why humans are leaning on the words of weird sisters it, desperate for any scrap yeah yeah humans hunger for god and something greater they'll they'll go down into the caves of witches to just to hear more from people who say they they can do things, um, supernatural things. Macbeth holds so strongly onto their little riddles about man born of no woman and the woods of Dunsinane. And he's like, okay, now I have it. Now I have the answers. I have certainty. I have knowledge. And you know, we'll get there. He hires murderers to kill Banquo. Macbeth says something that makes me think that he's slightly envious of Banquo. This is in Act 3, Scene 2. That says something maybe here like, uh, he says, better to better be with the dead whom we to gain our peace have sent to peace than on the torture of the mind to lie in restless ecstasy. Torture of the mind, dagger of the mind, restless ecstasy. And he's kind of the beginning of his death wish. Hmm. In scene three of act three, there's been some talk about who this third murderer is. Macbeth just sends two murderers after Banquo and then suddenly a third one meets them and they're like, who are you? Macbeth sent me. Some people think it is Macbeth in disguise. I don't really care that much. It's it's not a matter of high interest to me. Uh, but of I, course, it um, <clears throat> becomes a nice parallel to the three witches. A double set of three, yeah. Everything is mirrored. That's a good observation. But why? Why do you think that's a thing in this play? Well, well I've, I've kind of been saying it all along, and I want to land harder on it when we get to the end, but I think there are... It's a scattering, a whole hefty scattering of clues that this play believes that history repeats itself. Mm. When shall we three meet again? So the play ends, but this is just one king. And the next generation will do the same stuff. And the next generation will do the same stuff. And the next generation will do the same stuff. Mm. Everything inside the play happens twice, at least. And then, of course, going back to the fairy tale again, our imagination, you have reality and imagination. And they're kind of mirror images of each other. Yeah, well, that's why I think paradox and imagination are related. Mirror imaging or opposite. Anyway, I just suspect that Macbeth is not the third murderer because he, I think from now on, we see him not being able to kill up close. Arguably, he commits some of his most heinous crimes after this by killing Macduff's family, but he does it from a distance. He doesn't want to be up close. He doesn't want to be where the blood is. So for him to be like, oh, I'll go along for the ride seems slightly uncharacteristic to me of who he has become. Yeah. And also when it's reported to him that Fleance has fled, he seems slightly surprised. And yeah, Fleance escaped. And then Macbeth says, then comes my fit again. I had else been perfect. Whole as the marble, founded as the rock. As broad and general as, as the casing air, but now I am cabined, cribbed, confined, bound in, into saucy doubts and fears. Very Hitler-esque there, like seeing enemies everywhere, not safe until every last one is extinguished. 
Yeah, I mean, Act he, three, scene four. He becomes so greedy for his uh, for his fate, his promised fate. That even as it's happening, you know what I mean. He becomes greedy for it to happen more. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to ask this question. Why doesn't? Why isn't there a scene, at least one scene in this play, in which we can see Macbeth enjoying? his reign as king. He's now king. Yeah, he's never sitting on the throne like, all right, here we are. <laughs> he's never sitting on the throne being fed grapes to listening to a liar. Lady Macbeth isn't like, no. Ooh, you're a king. <laughs> and it's such a short, yeah, it's it's such a short play that there's room for such a scene. Yeah. So it's a conscious choice mm-hmm. to not have him enjoy it. It's um, chaos as soon as the king was murdered. I mean, he's now completely under in the mercy of his mind, his guilt, his uh, his greed, his paranoia, his insanity. It has all taken over completely. The mind is no longer, even if he wanted it to be, a pauser. His reason is not a pauser anymore. It's just... He's leapt the shoal of time and fallen in the puddle like the cat in the adage. Yep. Not mixing two uh. <laughs> two metaphors, but you get the point. Like he yeah, so he's I also think it's something fundamentally about his own character. He more than other people, more than say I'm trying to think of other Shakespearean characters, Lear, for example, in that wonderful dialogue with Cordelia when he says, Let's go to prison and just live you and me mm. and count gilded butterflies, you know? It's, it's persuasive to me that Lear is capable of living in the moment. Yeah. The, the transformed Lear, at least. Yeah. Macbeth never has this ability to live in the moment. No. So he gets what he wants, but then he wants something else. Right. We we, we got one rabbit. <laughs> we were given a free rabbit. And my daughter said, I want another one. And I said, yeah, but if we have two, you'll want three. And if we have three, you'll want four. And if you have four, you'll want five. But we have three now. <laughs> and on, on to the crack of doom. We now have three. <laughs> so she kind of won. Currently digging holes in our backyard. <clears throat> Macbeth epitomizes this trait, this inability to be content with the now, with what is. Yeah, he's completely blinded by it. Because his imagination is always offering him something better, something else. Yeah. I love this. Banquo's ghost comes and sits down, and there's this wonderfully dramatic... It's really, you know, it makes for great theater. All the chairs are taken. It's like, no, there's one here for you. And then he looks, and it's Banquo's ghost. Act three, scene four. I like this scene because... Maybe it shows what happens to a person who lets their imagination run wild, too wild, and they forfeit living in reality. Mm-hmm. Now he no longer has the ability to separate the two at all. He can't even mm-hmm. tell the difference. Now he is, uh, the two worlds have come together and he can't distinguish. And that's a uh, terrifying and uh, dangerous place to be. Yeah, there's some argument to be made that there is no ghost, that it is just a hallucination of some kind, because no one else sees it. Unlike, Oh, yeah. Well, that's what I'm assuming, yeah. Yeah, unlike, well, unlike other ghosts, you know, there are other witnesses to the ghost of Hamlet's father, for example, but no one else sees Banquo. Yeah, and don't you think it's super interesting when Lady Macbeth says, oh, don't worry about it, he's been like this since he was a child? It makes you wonder if he really has been like this and lady macbeth knows that about him right right i mean uh, yeah on one hand she's kind of like making up an excuse to cover for him but you could be right i I bet he has if any shakespearean character has it's him yeah he has a background of uh mental disturbances yeah getting scaring himself with his own fantasies yeah 
um, there's this wonderful thing that he says. He sees Banquo's ghost and he says, blood hath been shed ere now in the olden time. <laughs> so wonderful. This play takes place during the reign of Edward the Confessor, King of England. So this is 1000. Edward the Confessor was born 10, 1003 and died 1066. And this is the English king that Malcolm, I think, goes to. Or Donald Bain, one of them, I can't remember. And um, it's the English king that they see healing people with his magic touch. And England is to the delight of the Globe audience. Maybe at this point they weren't in the Globe. Um, the King's Men, Shakespeare's... I'm now in a tangent inside a tangent. King, The King's Men, Shakespeare's theater company, were called the King's Men after James I, who was Scottish and thought to have descended from Banquo. Mm. So some people argue that this play was written and performed for him in order to kind of like... He comes into the throne after Elizabeth dies. She reigned for a long time. And to kind of flatter their new patron, Shakespeare writes this play. They change their name to mm. the King's Men and write this play about his quote-unquote noble ancestry. But uh. <laughs> they're barbarians. It's kind of daring. How, how did Shakespeare have the guts to write a play? Okay, new king, I'll write a play about your ancestors. These bloodthirsty savages who do nothing but kill. Well, but they might have uh, valued those that kind of behavior. <laughs> well, yeah, I see what you mean. Like most gentlemen, mo this noble gentleman who is covered in blood. Yeah. Brave and valorous and stuff, but still like petty, throne stealing, backwards Scots. Yeah. This is not the way in which to flatter a new king, I don't think. No. <laughs> Um, and England, another reason why this doesn't appear to me to be a play of flattery is because England is clearly portrayed as superior. The English king is pious and yeah. noble and holy and so holy that he can heal the sick. And this is King Edward, Edward the Confessor. So unlike King Lear that takes place in some kind of foggy, dateless, pre-Christian time, you can date this, the events of this play, 1000. Why am I saying this? Because it's as if the gospel, Christian gospel, has got to England but not quite to Scotland. Blood hath been shed ere now in the olden time, Macbeth says. Ere human statute purged the gentle wheel. I and since too, murders have been performed. Too terrible for the ear. The time has been that when the brains were out, the man would die. And there an end. But now they rise again. Mm -hmm. Thanks to this new Jesus fellow. <laughs> and this thing called resurrection, which we've just started to believe in. We have to deal with all of these corpses coming back to life. There used to be a time when the brains were out, the men were dying. <laughs> and they are an end. And um, those were the days. There's a kind of lament in this. Don't you hear a lament? Those were the days when, when you killed the man, he would stay dead. Yeah. So some dissatisfaction with this new gospel that was being preached in which the dead could rise. Yeah. A new aspect of our imagination, also known as faith. <laughs> yeah. We have to imagine ghosts. Yeah, that's good. Imagination. He hate, He seems to not really quite like this new religion, or at least this particular doctrine. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's totally in character because he wants here to be the end all and the be all. He doesn't like the idea of resurrection. He doesn't I... like the idea of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Do you have this fear of eternity? What's so scary to you about immortality? I don't know. I think it's a combination of not liking to plan <laughs> things. I don't like to look ahead. And I don't like the idea of no variation. I guess what, what I'm most terrified of, uh, of is no variety. Yeah. No beginnings and starts at, and ends. 
that's why as a kid I thought, okay, I, I, I think I could be comforted by the idea of um, reincarnation, even if it's less uh, ideal you right. know, in the next life, then at least there's always a beginning and an end. I see. Etc. Yeah, just the idea of no variety is just horrible. For the same reason I don't like just solid colors, like just one solid color, you know, or, or even seascapes. I kind of don't like looking out at the sea because I need variety. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps on this petty pace. You don't like petty paces. Monotony. You don't like monotony. Exactly. I think Macbeth is equally, maybe for the same, maybe for different reasons, scared of something that never ends, that never changes. Yep. That never dies, and he wants here to be the be-all and the end-all. And he decides, well, I might as well start, I might as well kill more people, you know. Um, Macduff is starting to get suspicious. Well, maybe I should just kill him at the end of, of scene four. Macbeth says, I am in blood stepped in so far that should I wade no more, returning were as tedious as going o'er. Mm, you know, I'll just swim in an ocean of blood. I might as well go to the other shore now, yeah, shorter than turning around. Which again, is, is that true? No. No. Strange things I have in head. <laughs> Very self-aware. Strange thing that strange things I have in head that will to hand. I read this as a kind of anti-Hamlet. Uh, this was written after Hamlet. Hamlet is a play in which Shakespeare asks the question: What if a man was given a job? I mean, he asks every question that one could ask. One of them being: <laughs> What if a man was given a job and and found every excuse to think? before doing. It's not entirely true of Hamlet because he stabs people behind, that are hiding behind curtains, but... Yeah, but that's after he's yeah, he, become fed up with the reason, the pauser. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> More or less characterizes most of Hamlet. You can't really be pinned down. Anyway, it's like after writing this play, you could imagine Shakespeare saying, okay, what about a different kind of man? A kind of man who just did stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. I have uh, strange things I have in hand that will to hand which must be acted ere they may be scanned, which is the anti-Hamlet line, because Hamlet's about to kill Claudius, remember? Mm -hmm. It's like, hmm, but wait, this will be scanned. I think he even uses that word scanned. Oh. If I kill Claudius, he'll go to heaven. Hmm, this will be scanned. If he goes to heaven with repentance on his lips, then he'll get this eternal reward. Macbeth is saying, no, I'm not going to think about stuff. I'm just going to start killing. Yeah, and that's because he knows how powerful his mind is. He's he's scared of his own mind. So he knows his mind is going, going to talk him out of it. Yeah, his mind will talk him out of it and his wife will talk him back into it. Double, double, toil and trouble. Don't you think um, that also refers to Macbeth and Lady Macbeth? Or, I mean, the lady's the only difference there, even. Right, right. They're both equally bad. But equally good. I mean, equally, she has humanity. He, she has scraps of humanity and so does he. Well, sure, nobody's fully evil. but Yeah. But they are the same. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah. They are each other's evil twin. Yeah. Just as the imagination and and reality become the same. That's right. They're not contradictory, but complementary. Mm -hmm. This goes back to our, ad, not admiration, but respect for the witches like and wetness. Let there be wetness and wild. You know, um, you can't have spring without winter. So it's not that winter contradicts spring. But it complements it. You need the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Anyway, speaking of double, double toil and trouble. If you were to nominate alternate titles to this play, I might nominate... There's a few we could nominate. The Dagger of the Mind. That'd be a good title for this play. A mm. phrase that kind of captures its essence. The Dagger of the Mind would be one. Mm. Fatal Vision might be another. 
double double, I think could equally could do an equally good job of pinning down the heart of this play because everything is again and again and again and again. Everything is doubled. Everything happens again. Well, it just occurred to me since the idea of blood and double just kept coming up, the the words themselves, and I just thought they're anagrams to each other. I mean, not... They kind of are, though. They kind of are, yes. B-L, blood, if you just kind of rearrange the syllables of double, you'll get a word that sounds like blood. Yeah. It's interesting. I've never thought of that. It's there, and somebody like Shakespeare, who's so obsessed with sounds and words, would have known that. Well, I think it goes... It's worth thinking about. (laughs) Well, I think it's... um, I mean, I don't want to stretch this out to a point of ridiculousness, but the heartbeat is double, you know, boom, boom. Mothers and children, mothers and babies, generation, hmm. Macduff and his family, the parents being mirrored and the children, blood, genes, becomes a doubling every time you reproduce. You know, it's not nothing. That's true. And babies are mentioned a lot. Speaking of babies being mentioned a lot, this witch's spell is so great. This is just great poetry. I mean, oh my gosh, right? I've read this to our kids and we just are totally thrilled. Round about the cauldron go, in poisoned entrails throw, toad that under cold stone days and nights has thirty-one, sweltered venom sleeping got, boil thou first in the charmed pot, double-double toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. This is Act 4, Scene 1. Fillet of a fenny snake in the cauldron boil and bake, eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog, adder's fork and blind worm's sting, lizard's leg and howlet's wing. For a charm of powerful trouble, like the hell broth boil and bubble, scale of dragon, tooth of wolf, witch's mummy, maw and gulf, of the ravened salt sea shark, root of hemlock digged in the dark, liver of blaspheming Jew, gull of goat and slips of you, silvered in the moon's eclipse, nose of Turk and Tartar's lips, finger of birth strangled babe, mm-hmm. which is probably my favorite line in the spell, finger of birth strangled babe, ditch delivered by a drab. Make the gruel thick and slab. Yeah. <laughs> so wonderful. Add there to a tiger's cauldron for the ingredients of our cauldron. <sighs> it's amazing. You know what? <laughs> After you said it's amazing, it actually kind of reminds me of your poetry. <laughs> Go on. No, seriously. It reminds me of your poetry because you are really good at writing poems that uh, that are almost litanies of these Really vivid, concrete, often gross, natural things. Do you know what I mean? You have a lot of guts and bugs and <laughs> and blood and... Yes, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of beauty too, but I think you... You're right. You're right what you're yeah, saying. I, mean, I am like Shakespeare. No, but tell me now. Why do you do that? I suspect I know the answer, but... Well, we. you might be thinking of poems like this poem I wrote about beachcombing with our kids and finding all this nasty, beautiful, beautifully nasty yes, sea exactly. life that is all is foul and fair, gloriously disgusting. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't really. I don't have a deep reason. It's gloriously disgusting. It, it's inherently captivating. That's why I do it. All right. And what is more, what screams life more than something disgusting? Right. Yeah. You see, like, imagine seeing like. A beached whale that's literally rotting on a beach. Yeah, Richard Wilbur has this wonderful poem about mushrooms. It's called Children of Darkness, his poem. (laughs) And it's this disgusting poem about how disgusting mushrooms are. And then he says, they are God's children too, or something like that. Praise them, or something. That's how it ends. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. 
Macbeth goes to them in their hovel, these witches, and says, I conjure you by that which you profess, however you come to know it, answer me, though you untie the winds and let them fight against the churches, though the yeasty waves confound and swallow navigation up, though bladed corn be lodged and trees blown down, though, though castles topple on their wardrobes' heads, though palaces and pyramids do slope their heads to their foundations, though the treasure of nature's Germans, this is where I get the word germination from, the seeds, though the treasure of nature's seeds, Germans, tumble altogether, even till destruction sicken. Answer me to what I ask you. So he's willing to let creation die to get answers to his questions. He has an anti-nature, an anti-procreative impulse. Mm. Macbeth versus nature. He's willing to kill all of nature, especially things that germinate, especially the young, especially children. Mm. All of nature's seeds, you know, he's willing to destroy, destroy it in order to get what he wants. It's quite apocalyptic. So tell me more about how my poems are like Shakespeare. <laughs> Macbeth has this meeting with the witches and he is told these riddles. None of woman born shall harm Macbeth. Macbeth shall never vanquish be until great Burnham would to high Dunsinane Hill shall come against him. Proof that riddles and paradox are central to the play. Then he sees this line of kings, the last of whom is holding a mirror, because um, it's thought that James I, in the actual play, performance play, was supposed to look into this mirror and see himself as a descendant of Banquo. Macbeth's response to this vision is, what will the line stretch out to the crack of doom? Uh, again, an expression of his resentment of either eternity or Banquo's eternal lineage. Um... The very first things of my heart shall be the first things of my hand, he says. So many of Shakespeare's characters are always wishing that they could, you know, be done with thought and that they could just get to the action, that they could just do the thing they need to do. And that would make life easier. And they, they want to be a sort of just brainless animal almost. Mm. Like Keats said, um, where but to think is to be full of sorrow. And even Lady Macbeth, after they kill Duncan, says to her husband, who's kind of shivering, she says, Why, worthy Thane, you do unbend your noble strength you do unbend your noble strength to think so brain sickly of things. Mm, yeah. Thinking is always brain sickly. Right. And there's a kind of nobility of action that has lost that. Yeah. I mean, imagine what sort of things one would be able to do without thinking about it. You know, especially introverts like us <laughs> or shy people you know there's always a dagger in the mind exactly so lady Macduff and her son have this very heartbreaking dialogue because henchmen are sent to them before they are murdered though they have this little dialogue the son what is a traitor lady Macduff why one that swears and lies son and be all traitors that do so lady Macduff every one that does so is a traitor and must be hanged Son, and must they all be hanged that swear and lie? Lady Macduff, every one. Son, who must hang them? Lady Macduff, why the honest men? Son, then the liars and swearers are fools, for there are liars and swearers enough to beat the honest men and hang up them. Very heartbreaking to me that this boy already has this worldview in which the majority of people are liars and swearers who could avoid being hanged because they outnumber moral people. Yeah, and uh, don't you feel like the mom is... I feel like the mom is lying to him right in that moment, too. 
they should all be hanged, anyone, any person who lies, but all people lie. Right, right. We'll skip uh, the last scene of Act 4 and go to Act 5, Scene 1, the sleepwalking scene. Well, Lady Macbeth is, you know, walking around asleep but with her eyes open, and that's kind of the thing that she's wanted all along. That's Macbeth wanted. They wanted an ability to walk through life and not see, not understand. Yeah, act without the exactly. eyes seeing what the hand's doing. Exactly. Or without heaven seeing. It, yeah. Without their conscience seeing. But now that it's happening, it's it's terrifying to everyone around. It's it's not desirable. No. She's she's just a ghost. She's a, a shadow. Yeah. Just um automaton of some kind. Yeah. There's some wonderful paradoxes here in this scene. The doctor says in this slumbery agitation, kind of oxymoron, you see her eyes are open, gentlemen eye, but their sense are shut, you know. Right. And she has to have light by her continually, which is a kind of Dante esque punishment. She wanted darkness and now she gets eternal. She's kind of attached to this light. Yeah. And not just a punishment, but she wanted darkness so badly and then she was so fully in it that she desires nothing more but light. You know, she imagined complete darkness where deeds won't be seen. And then when she finally got total darkness or, you know, hope, complete hopelessness and just a life without any sort of moral light. I see. Then now she has a light with her at all times, even when she's sleeping. Right. That's really interesting, isn't it? Even when you're asleep, you want the light on. I mean, I guess that's how kids are, but even when she's not consciously thinking, she needs light. Out, damned spot, out, I say. One, two, when tis time to do it. Hell is murky. Fie, my lord, fie, a soldier, and a feared? What need we fear, who knows it, when none can call our power to account? Yet who would have thought the old man to have had so much blood in him? You surprisingly like the gore in this play. Yeah, I do. You don't you're, You don't usually like gore. I don't, but the gore is what plucks the um, characters from their fairy tale, from their horrible fairy tale, and makes them humans. It's as if Lady Macbeth and Macbeth themselves feel as if they were in a fairy tale, you know? They're, they dreamed of him becoming king, they they murdered, and and then that fantasy, the blood is what... It's no longer a movie they're watching and being entertained by. Yeah, so you're saying that you like it because... The, you like the blood because it it is a reminder of reality. Exactly, because they live so much in their dreams. We all live so much in our dreams and in our desires and... When real life actually touches us, when we touch the physical, the physical world, then well, blood is the ultimate proof of life, and um, so it destroys fantasy. This is this is we've talked about the ways in which fantasy eclipses reality. This old man filled with blood is reality asserting itself again. Yeah, which is good. Right. It's good to. It's a reality check. I mean, and that's probably what. Um, What's tricky with a lot of really violent entertainment that people enjoy. You know, there's this idea that you can get desensitized to violence. Hmm. And it's probably similar to planning a murder like Macbeth did. And then to actually then see it play out in real life, it's 
it's different. This leads us to this wonderful moment where she says, all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Because it's as if uh, perfume is a kind of fantasy. And fantasy in the face of something as real as blood becomes ugly. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, the, the fake perfume smell covering a horrible real smell is in a way more offensive than the ugly real smell. Because it's kind of, uh, it's a lie. The perfume is a lie. But the smell of the blood isn't. It's true. Which is why we like it. Yeah, it re- you know, it's like that uh, that movie, Wings of Desire, uh-huh. where an angel yearns to be alive and to have, to be made up of the mess yeah. of life, you know, to have, to be filled with blood and to be vulnerable and to, to be human. And then there's that wonderful moment where he finally becomes a human and he hears an ambulance and it fills him with joy because he's finally... Mm. I mean, yeah, the implications are terrible. Yeah, now you can die. Right. You can get terribly hurt. But now you can also also feel the joy of being alive. Some A rock hits him or something or he falls. But anyway, his temple is bleeding and he looks at the blood. And yeah, it, it's the proof that he is... I keep trying to... Embodied. Fi- yeah, I keep trying to figure out why this blood is so important to me. <laughs> Being embodied is good. Well, yeah. It's like a kind of... This might be a little far-fetched, but it's like a kind of signature, almost like ink. Thing. It's signed. It's like completely confirmed that, that you are alive. <laughs> and, you know, in this play, people are just like basically drowning in blood. They're just, they're just so human and so alive that they're just covered in it. Yeah, who's that bloodied man? Right. How they begin the play. Uh, the doctor says, this disease is beyond my practice. Yeah, I, I thought this was really sad. The uh, Macbeth says, cure her. Uh, you know, the doctor says she she's troubled with thick coming fancies that keep her from rest. And Macbeth says, cure her of that. Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased, pluck from the memory of rude at sorrow, raise out the written troubles of the brain, and with some sweet, oblivious antidote, cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart. And then, of course, he, the doctor says, therein the patient must minister to himself. Yeah. And that is one of the greatest tragedies in life. We all have this brain, we all have this mind that there's no doctor that can get in there and and see what's actually happening. There are ways in which we are completely alone, where we actually, there's nobody who can who can help us but ourselves. We all kind of have this prayer of Macbeth. Like, isn't there some medicine that can erase a memory? Yeah, the rooted sorrow, yeah. We don't have to have killed someone, but just even just having a regret, feeling guilty yeah. about something. Some sweet oblivious antidote, you know, is, again, Keats. Yeah. Oh, for a beaker full of the warm self. I know. And that's like, no, nope, the patient must minister to himself. And then Macbeth says, throw physic to the dogs. Oh, none of it. Yeah. Macbeth's language is different, it strikes me, in this very last act. It's more, he's more curt. He's more angry. He's He talks like a cornered animal. Mm-hmm. All, none of it. Come, put my armor on. Give me my staff. Satan, send out. Doctor... The thanes fly from me. Come, sir, dispatch. If thou couldest, doctor, cast the water of my land. Find her disease. It's kind of like interruptive 
imperatives that he's throwing out, kind of interrupting himself. Yeah, it's uh, find her disease and purge it to a sound and pristine health. You know, as if a little water will clear us of this deed. Right, yeah. But nothing can cure us of being human. A few pages later, this attendant, whose name is Satan, which, or Seton, is very <laughs> obvious. Mm. Someone is attending Macbeth here in the final days of his tyranny, comes in and says, The queen, my lord, is dead. Macbeth, she should have died hereafter. She should have died later. After now. There would have been a time for such a word, for such a word as death. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Is that the best Ooh. thing Shakespeare wrote? Yeah, actually. Well, we must justify that with some kind of explanation. I'm 100% sure. <laughs> well, it's going to be hard to summarize the power and the beauty of this or to explain it. You know, being poetry, it's going to be partly indefinable and mysterious why this passage, passage has so much power. Part of it has to do with the language. It's predominantly monosyllabic, you know, creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. Out, out, um, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury. Mm -hmm. The language is so simple. The language is so simple and childlike almost. Yeah, brief candle, like flickering, like choppy. Yeah, so it's just it's just extremely clear language and simple language and small words like bullets. You know, that's the thing about monosyllables. They have this kind of potency, mm -hmm. this kind of energy because they're brief little meteors and no syllable gets lost. They all have to be carefully landed on and enunciated. Mm -hmm. So it's, part of its power is that. This is wonderful repetition tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Mm. Ametrical, incantatory, creeps in this petty pace, some wonderful alliteration and assonance there from day to day, another mirror, another repetition. To the last syllable, it's self-referential for writers, but also for actors. You know, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player. Mm. Struts and frets his hour upon the stage. It confirms or it echoes some of our greatest fears about life that maybe there aren't even three weird sisters who are scheming and cooking up things. <laughs> but maybe there's just maybe it's just a badly written thing, a tale told by an idiot. No great sense to it, nothing noble, nothing it's just awkward. And pointless. Awkward and pointless, full of just noises instead of beautiful sounds, right? Yeah, full of sound and fury. So wonderfully phrased. Sound, yeah. Sound and fury. I know, and it's it's really self-deprecating too, right? It's like all of this has just been a bunch of noises, and it doesn't really mean anything, this play. Well, I guess I don't know if he's worried about 
himself, he's criticizing maybe other playwrights who write badly or uh, poor players who act badly. We, we've talked in excruciating detail about <laughs> how finely put together this play is. Mm-hmm. It's not told by an idiot. No, no, not at all. But I can't help but think that Shakespeare, like all other humans, has his insecure moments. Yeah, it would be a more profound insecurity than just, am I a good writer? It would be, what is the point of being alive? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And what's the point of me being alive and, you know, fretting about this, you know, strutting and fretting upon the stage and having other people. And then is heard no more. Yeah. Will this be read? Yeah. Why have I worked so hard writing these plays? Right. Weirdly, he didn't really, Ben Johnson, his contemporary, put all of his plays into a book and published them and took great pains to edit them for publication. Shakespeare seemed to just like, it's one of the most confusing things about Shakespeare. He just let them go kind of into the wind. Wow. Why not why not take great care to preserve them? He didn't. Well see what I mean? He he might have asked himself this about his his life's work, you know what I mean? What's the point even of this? All these people fretting around and I'm yeah. in the grand scheme of things, you know. Even you know, the greatest moments in this plays they were maybe mean nothing. It's lasting poetry because it clearly with great emphasis with great vivid brevity expresses all of our deepest fear. Right. Our deep, our deepest fear as a species is that life is pointless. Yeah. And this, I think I, in my, in our last podcast about art of darkness, I said, I said something like it was the most powerful expression of nihilism, but it's not more powerful than this. This is the most powerful expression of nihilism in English for sure. A tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Hmm. We've spun out what may be the most important paradox or contradiction in this play, right? Macbeth hates the idea of eternity. He wants now to be the end-all and the be-all, and he resents Banquo's progeny for living on to the crack of doom. So he hates the idea of eternity, but he can't live in the moment. Yeah. So he lives neither in the future nor in the instant, to, to quote Lady Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Kind of homeless. If you look at this soliloquy, it has the words tomorrow and it has the word yesterday's in it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't use the word today. Yeah. There, there is a little ghost of the word today creeps in this petty pace from day to day. So today is present in the soliloquy as a kind of shadow. Mm. Life's but a walking shadow, you know? Mm. Macbeth can't live in the present and even in the soliloquy that idea is embodied quite carefully. I think this hatred of the future tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, the monotony of it. Yeah, just the actors fretting, strutting and fretting just continuously. Forever and forever. Um, But So we're always thinking about tomorrow and craving tomorrow, but when it comes, we're just craving the next day, like a second rabbit or a third rabbit or a fourth rabbit. We're never just pleased with one, one rabbit, you know. Anyway, I think this is touching on some important theological territory because as a new Christian... He is torn between eternity and mortality. He's torn between this life and the next. Where do we live? Mm-hmm. This life or the next life? Do we live tomorrow in the promise of the afterlife? Or we, do we live today like a good pagan, like Horace, you know, drinking his wine, carp, carping the diem, seizing the day? Mm. What is the best way to live? I, I think that that's kind of hovering in the background of this whole play. What is the best way to live? In the hope of tomorrow or in the pre- pleasure 
and meaning of today. And Ham Macbeth is like that cat who is afraid to jump over the puddle, leap over the bank, and falls. So he gets kind of neither. You know what I mean? He's trying to sit between two chairs, and instead of picking one, falls between both. Yeah. And gets neither. Yeah. I think it's just so heartbreaking, this tale told by an idiot. Because, you know, if anyone really sat down, if you kind of have this belief that your life is very carefully orchestrated by some greater power, very carefully, you the know, weird, every the detail. The sisters, the fate sisters. Yeah, whoever they are. Um, if you think about that for long enough, it can only be an idiot because life is ridiculous. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. It would have to be an idiot. <laughs> Robert Frost, one of his best poems, What But Design of Darkness to Appall, if mm-hmm. design govern in a thing so small. So if there is a governor who is in charge of spiders eating moths, everything from that to the Holocaust, then, you know, <laughs> Kurtz, the horror, the horror. Mm. I keep wanting nervously to assert that he, you can't prove him wrong. Mm-hmm. So another reason why this little soliloquy of Macbeth has such power, because it's not like you could say, oh, no, Macbeth, no, no, you're wrong. Life's not a tale told by an idiot. I know, though the thing, I think the reason why this gives me hope and I don't read it and think, oh, yeah, that's true, everything's truly horrible and meaningless, is because... There are tales told, not by idiots, by beautiful brains like Shakespeare. No, that's right. I don't think... And we we, are reading it. Yeah, totally. I don't think we should take Macbeth's... Think about who Macbeth is. Right. A homicidal maniac. His worldview isn't Shakespeare's. I don't think we should take this as the meaning of the play. I mean, it's it's one of the meanings that the play offers us, and it's not automatically wrong or bad, but I don't think it's meant to be the final word. The very beauty and complexity and perfection of the play itself seems to argue that tales by non-idiots are possible. <laughs> yes, and we can be, and I think most most importantly is we can be our own playwright for our lives. You know what I mean? Well, can we? I mean... I, I think so. The weird sisters. Don't trust like... in the weird sister. You know, don't assume there's some weird sisters out there orchestrating stuff. I'm not saying don't believe in God or anything. Well, but, but should we believe in fate? I I don't think so. I think what I kind of take away from it is write your own story. Don't have it be written by an idiot. Write it yourself. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. If we author our lives, it's up to us whether or not they seem to be told by idiots. Yeah, and I'm saying be in charge of your life. If there's a thing you're hoping for that's good, you know, you can be the author of your life. Don't wait for tomorrow, tomorrow, and tomorrow, or live in yesterday. But Yeah, we, this could lead us to the end here. Are there positive counter... Where in this play do we look for a model of how to live? Where and to whom? It's hard, isn't it? It's a hard question. Think about that as we get to the end here. Mm. Macduff comes, yeah, I was... Oh, the, the trees, the trees are coming. I love this bit about the trees. The, the army is hiding behind these trees to approach... I really liked this, uh, this part because the book, the whole book, a play reads like a fairy tale. And even, you know, Macbeth is like, oh, I'll be fine because, you know, the forest of Burnham is never going to just move mm. and come to the castle. It's an impossibility. But then um, the the soldiers 
find a way to make the fairy tale real. They each cut off a tree yeah. and carry it. They literally carry it. So it's it's an example of, I guess, a positive example of the imagination. Magic becoming real. Yeah, you can take things into your own hands in a bad way, like Macbeth murdering, or in this positive way of um, righting wrongs. It, it feels like a fairy tale, but it's at the same time realistic. Therefore, the line is again completely blurred between the imagination and reality. You know, going back to the idea of it's a tale told by an idiot, I think the forest moving is another example of how we can take fate into our own hands. If winter comes, can spring be far behind? Are we to see this at the very end of this play as a emblem of a coming rebirth for Scotland? And the political life of Scotland, this this new green life sprouting up, is this hopeful? The trees have been cut down. It's a kind of fake forest. So there's some suggestion there that it's not hopeful. But it is hopeful in the sense that impossible things are happening in real life. Miracles are taking place. So it's even more hopeful than a real forest. Yeah. So it's somehow magical. Yeah. But what about perfume? Is it the perfume equivalent? Because it's kind of like a facade of a forest. I agree. I see what you're saying, and I agree with you. I'm just wondering if there's also a rabbit inside this duck. <laughs> duck is also a rabbit. Or a hamster. Or a hamster. Let me just read this bit about Seward's son. Ross says to Seward, Your son, my lord, has paid a soldier's debt. He only lived but till he was a man. The witch no sooner had his prowess confirmed in the unshrinking station where he fought, but like a man, he died. Seward says, Then he is dead. Ross, I, and brought off the field. Your cause of sorrow must not be measured by his worth, for then it hath no end. I think that's so beautiful. Why? You know, don't. If you were to grieve as much as he deserved, you would grieve forever. He was worthy of so much grief that your grief would have no end. Mm. <laughs> That's so beautiful. A testament to the power of the mind. You could feel guilt forever, but you could also, you can love people, and you can love them so much that you you could grieve forever. Yeah. Like Macbeth turning the, sea, the green sea red, you know, it's the, the mind is like, yeah, I, it contains infinity in some real way. The mind is a burden, but... But what? But divine. But it makes gods. We've come full circle. Seward responds to this and says, Had he his hurts before, Ross, I on the front. So he got his wounds on the front. He, he didn't get them on his back running away. He faced the battle and died like a quote-unquote man, to use a key word in the play. Seward says, Why then, God soldier, be he? Had I as many sons as I have heirs, I would not wish them a fairer death. You know, I, I don't want to um, criticize this too much. I think there is something worth praising about a noble life that asserts the importance of valor and courage in the face of battle. That's important. Mm -hmm. But it is, on the other hand, slightly depressing to know that the, the kingdom still is peopled by soldiers, peopled by soldiers. A war, this is a warrior society. Mm. Malcolm takes the throne. So, Mike, I want you to answer this question. Where do you look in the play to find hope? Malcolm says the last words here. My thanes and kingsmen henceforth be earls, you know, because 
we'll give ourselves to England now and take on their titles. Calls Macbeth this dead butcher and his fiend-like queen. Mm-hmm. Who, as tis thought by self and violent hands, took off her life, so she probably killed herself. Mm. Yeah, she dies very quickly and strangely, doesn't she? Nope. It's like not talked, described or anything. So That's but- right. So the tyrant is dead. The dead butcher is dead. Uh, they're going to have a happier life in England with be- with the pious King Edward being Earls. What do you think? Is th- where do we look for in the play for hope? It's very fitting that Macbeth, who so cursed his mind, something holding him back from the actions he wanted to perform, and, you know, as this burden, the guilt and the paranoia, his head ends up on a post, just his head at the end, like a sort of symbol for the thing. Yeah, the imagination. The locus of the imagination ends up. Yeah, completely separated yeah. separated from the body. And finally, finally free of thought, right? Finally free of guilt. And because um, it is not thinking anymore. So what's your answer to the question of hope? So my answer is the thing that we curse the most are troubling thoughts is the same thing you know, the pauser, the reason that um, that saves us. The ability to feel remorse, the ability to feel guilt for a cold-blooded murder to, murderer to, to feel the weight of his or her action, you know, seeing all that blood or, you know, if he hadn't looked so much like my father, I could have done it. Um, that even in people who seem to have no moral compass anymore, it does a lot of work. Yeah, I don't know. You're selling a... Does, does it? It's little scraps here. Yeah, they're scraps. In Macbeth, they're scraps because he's almost uh, fully evil. <laughs> but even somebody so blinded in their greed, even they can be reached by that reason. Even they can be become aware of the, the horror, the horror. He hears the reason whispering, and he says, Okay, go away, reason. And start stabbing. Yeah, That's I know. Not hopeful. I know what you mean, but it's an extreme example. There's a Macbeth and, and Lady Macbeth and all of us. So it, it's almost kind of a relief. Like, okay, even they are able to feel guilt and realize that they did something. I see. So even in a psychopath, there's some glimmer. Yeah. This is the hope. Yeah. And I am not a psychopath. And thank goodness I have reason, the pauser to kind of stop me from doing terrible things or to help me realize that I did a terrible thing. Is that anything? Is that any light for you at all? I might be asking the wrong question. I'm Maybe I'm demanding some something from the play I shouldn't be demanding. It's not its job to affirm life, is it? Maybe it's just a study in tyranny. This is what happens when a psychopath... Yeah, cautionary tale, yeah. ...takes control and things go to hell. So, the end. Don't kill people making some kind of cosmic statement because I'm mm. I'm half I feel this impulse to turn the page after Malcolm's last words and I swear that on that page I will see the words thunder a heath enter three witches when shall we three meet again they're going to keep doing this till the crack of doom these three witches call that fate call that the universe call that a tale told by an idiot tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow is this ever going to end there's no way around it. It's a very bleak play. I don't come out of it thinking life is beautiful. But there's that weird thing about 
feeling, uh, I don't know, commiseration? I, I commiserate with uh, Macbeth, and I feel like Macbeth is commiserating with me. He's an extreme example of me, and a very extreme one. But I have felt shadows of all the things he has felt. I see. I have mourned the fact that my life seems to have been written by an idiot, and that I ha seem to have no power. Until you married me. <laughs> no, you know, like I seem to have no power over the events in my life. We've, I mean, everyone has felt that way, and if that's all it is, is that's something. I think that's not nothing, yeah. The mind, even when brain sick, when plagued, is so... Uh, Yeah, it is a beautiful thing. I think, yeah, the, the, the imagination, yeah, we'll stop here because we've come full circle. It's, it's horrifying and beautiful. Macbeth's mm -hmm. imagination is maybe, except for Hamlet, the most potent in any Shakespeare character. He can imagine apocalypse, daggers, ghosts. Yeah, and he yearns for a cure for his thoughts, but the cure is cutting the head off the body. That's what that looks like. What's in between? Is there a middle ground? <laughs> How do we live with our minds? That's a good way to end. Posing the question without answering it. I have no idea. How do we live with our minds? Today's poem of the day is by Robert Frost. It's a poem that takes both its title and its whole psycho-spiritual outlook on life and the cosmos, and suffering and pain. From Macbeth. It's called Out, Out. The buzz saw snarled and rattled in the yard, and made dust and dropped stove-length sticks of wood, sweet-scented stuff when the breeze drew across it. And from there those that lifted eyes could count five mountain ranges one behind the other under the sunset far into Vermont. And the saw snarled and rattled, snarled and rattled, as it ran light or had to bear a load. And nothing happened. Day was all but done. Call it a day, I wish they might have said, to please the boy by giving him the half hour that a boy counts so much when saved from work. His sister stood beside him in her apron to tell them supper. At the word, the saw, as if to prove saws knew what supper meant, leapt out at the boy's hand, or seemed to leap. He must have given the hand. However it was, neither refused the meeting. But the hand. The boy's first outcry was a rueful laugh as he swung toward them holding up the hand half in appeal, but half as if to keep the life from spilling. Then the boy saw all, since he was old enough to know, big boy doing a man's work though a child at heart. He saw all spoiled. Don't let him cut my hand off, the doctor, when he comes. Don't let him, sister. So. But the hand was gone already. The doctor put him in the dark of ether. He lay and puffed his lips out with his breath. And then the watcher at his pulse took fright. No one believed. They listened at his heart. Little. Less. Nothing. And that ended it. No more to build on there. And they, since they were not the one dead, turned to their affairs.
I hope you enjoyed that insanely long chat. Uh, Claire and I may or may not be doing another long one like this for Dante's Inferno in the coming days and weeks. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoy listening. <laughs>